as you look and I look to the Lord now in prayer. Now, our Father, as we're coming into your presence and we see the significance of this emphasis upon endurance, we understand the significance of what the Apostle Paul has experienced and what he's sharing with us. In those opening verses, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. And we see now how you are using that instruction of the opening verses and tying it together with the lessons of Paul's personal experiences. Giving us a sense of this can be done. By God's grace, life can be managed. And by your constraining love, we can persevere. So if there's anyone here this morning that finds that they need some kind of bridge, transferable principles from scriptures into 2018 living. Pray that they will find it here in these verses. And thank you for the way in which Paul has opened up his heart into our lives. So again, these moments to come are significant. They are part of your plan. So Father, Warm these hearts, engage these minds, shape these wills, as again now we've come here to see Jesus and him only. I we're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. You're going to notice with me that in the very heart of what Paul is saying here, that all of this that he is having to face is to be managed with great endurance, not minimal, great. And I thought about that when I came across this excerpt on the life of William Wilberforce, who was discouraged one night in the 1790s, still another political defeat in his 10-year battle against the slave trade in England. Maybe you saw the movie, Amazing Grace. Tired and frustrated, he had opened his Bible, began to leaf through it. God's sovereignty. A small piece of paper fell out, fluttered to the floor, and it was a letter written by John Wesley shortly before his death, and Wilberforce read it again, quote, Wilberforce, unless the divine power has raised you up, I see not how you can go through your enterprise in opposing that abominable practice of slavery, which is the scandal upon England and human nature. Wilberforce, unless God has raised you up for this very thing, you're going to be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. But if God be for you, who can be against you? Are all of them together stronger than God? Endure, Wilberforce, 
endure. Go on in the name of God and in the power of his might. As you see in your bulletin insert today and what we pen together with regard to 2 Corinthians 6, 1 through 10, the key Greek word that I want to draw out for us this morning is hupomene. Hupomene. It's a powerful word. It was a noble word, one of the noblest words in the Greek language during the days of the Roman Empire. And I don't know if any single English word can transmit its full meaning, but let me give it a shot. Because one use of this word in that time period was the ability of a plant to live under hard and unfavorable conditions. And maybe in some way, shape, or form, that's the way in which you view life as it is right now. You might say to yourself, if God were so loving, if God were so gracious, well, then the conditions would be more favorable than they are at this point in this season of my life. But notice that the Apostle Paul has already in the prior chapter talked about God's constraining love. Paul has been hemmed in by God's love even in the difficult extremes of life. What fascinates me furthermore is that this word hupomene was used four times by the Hebrew writer in Hebrews 12 to describe Jesus Christ in his work on the cross. Let us run with hupomene, endurance, the race that's set before us looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, Hupomene, endured the cross, despising the shame, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who, Hupomene, endured from sinners and hostility, such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And later in verse 7, it is for discipline that you have to hupomene, endure. God is treating you as sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Four times, the writer Hebrews describes Jesus Christ as embracing hupomene, endurance, in the way in which he was going to approach the severity of life itself. Now, what I want to do with you this morning in these 10 verses as we continue our 2018 exploration of 2 Corinthians is to draw three significant distinctives of hupomene, endurance, not mere endurance, great endurance, so that no matter what it is you're experiencing in life this morning, where you feel as though God has planted me on in difficult circumstances, what God has done is he loves to plant us in situations whereby he can use us to minister to others who are going through severe times. Three distinctives that are found here in these ten verses about endurance stand out to me, great endurance. And the first is found in verse 1, and tracking as well in verse 2 that as we develop 
hupomene, endurance for effective ministry collectively, it's this congregation of three services and more. Note, first of all, what we'll call the favorable time to be discerned in life. And we're going to have to develop that. Let me just read one and two and then break it down. Working together with him, speaking of God, then we appeal to you, speaking of us, not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he, speaking of God, says, in a favorable time. That's where I'm getting my opening distinctive. In a favorable time, I listened to you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Now, I want you to link together the behold and the now. It appears not once but twice, okay? Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Now, let's begin to work this out, break this down, put it together, and apply it to our lives. It begins with working together, not separate from God, but working with God. You ever considered that? We are not isolated from God in grace. Rather, what we are to be is in partnership with God through grace. And one who holds the sovereign grace, I pondered that, and the significance of that, and to think about what does that mean? How does that work? Working together with God. But the Apostle Paul, who had endured a time of imprisonment in Philippi, would later write to them, helps us. When Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, he had written, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, get this now, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So if you want a good workout this week, what you and I are called to do is to work out what God has worked in. You see, God works it in, but he expects you to work it out. Too many times we become people who are absorbers of biblical truth, but not transmitters of biblical truth. What God wants us to do is to be channels, not reservoirs. So we are working out what God is working in. So that when others are going through the difficulties, the challenges, the extremes of life, what they see is a well-conditioned spiritual athlete on their hands who is still working out when others are sitting it out. You and I are to work out what God has worked in. But what's fascinating is that we work together with him, not separate from him. And so now, after having said that, the Apostle Paul issues an appeal He's been doing that in chapter 5, now again in, chapter, in verse, chapter 6. We appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Now, as one who holds the sovereign grace, you might ask the question, well, how can Gary then possibly hold to the idea of receiving God's grace in vain? Eight centuries prior to the Apostle Paul writing this, in Isaiah chapter 49, which I believe in many ways was the most significant chapter that the Apostle Paul relied upon to engineer his ministry, 
We find in verses 3 and 4 of Isaiah 49, And he said to me, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. And But I said, I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing. You ever felt that way? Vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord, and my recompense is with my God. How does that relate? Notice how he builds a bridge from the scriptures into his own life. For you see, in Acts chapter 13, the Apostle Paul, in that multicultural city of Antioch, referenced Isaiah chapter 49 as the basis for his ministry of outreach to the Gentiles. And in his outreach to the Gentiles, where he was going beyond his Judaism, and he viewed himself as a channel, not a reservoir, he would embrace verse 6 of Isaiah 49. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob to bring back the preserves of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations. And so the Jew was to be a light to the Gentile. Paul embraced that. and He's looking for ways in the midst of the trials of his life not to let the flame flicker. And in the extremes of life that you face, has your flame begun to flicker? Now, he views himself, as you and I should view ourselves, as light in the midst of darkness. Maybe that is where God has positioned you in your workplace, in extended relationships. So ask yourself, how can I bring light to this darkened thought process, light to this darkened mentality, light to this darkened value system? And now he's up to verse 2. And I want you to notice how brilliantly he's a gifted teacher. He moves from the general to the particular. In a favorable time, he's referring to God at this point. He's creating now a favorable time. I listen to you. Now he moves to the particular. In a day of salvation, I've helped you. So now what you and I have to do is to recognize that through the cross of Jesus Christ, endorsed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God has delivered the day of salvation. And so, what you do next is that you connect the two behold nows. And notice that it does not read, behold yesterday. Nor does it read, behold tomorrow. Because you nor I are lords of time, are we? We're not sovereign over the days of our lives because we can't guarantee we've got a tomorrow. We're still trying to reinvent our yesterday. But now, notice he uses a highly visual word, behold. So he uses a visual at this point to seize your attention, and he gets it rooted right in contemporary thinking and Christian living. Behold now, not yesterday, behold not tomorrow, is the favorable time, that's general. Behold now. And he takes the cross of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, brings it right into a person's present and says, Behold, now, now is the day of your salvation. So let me ask you the question, 
Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ exclusively as your Lord and Savior? We'll pose that in all the services this morning. Where we have identified the fact that we are not saved by our efforts, by our theoretic supposed goodness, but by Jesus Christ's work and his work alone. Behold now, behold now, twice, for emphasis. Months and months and months ago, some of us in our family were in New York City, but while we were standing at a particular site in New York City, we were standing at the burial site of Alexander Hamilton. And my mind was racing at this point, because you've always got to build a bridge between history and current events, don't you? And so I knew, and you know, what was happening with the Hamilton musical taking place in New York City and the way in which this was addressing the current issues of the hour. So I'm standing there with family members at Hamilton's gravesite, thinking about how Hamilton died. Maybe you remember some of the story. It was a gun duel with Aaron Burr, political opponents. Hamilton lost his life to Aaron Burr. Aaron Burr, at one point, in the midst of a revival at Princeton, heard the gospel being presented, and he found it very compelling, and went to one of his professors and asked, what should I do with what I'm hearing? And the, and the professor told him to simply let the emotions settle down, and then perhaps at a certain point down the road he could explore the evidences as to whether or not Jesus is who he claimed to be. Now, that's a behold tomorrow, isn't it? Not a behold today. So further on, towards the final days of his life, Aaron Burr was talking with a granddaughter, and they were discussing the evidences for Christianity, and Aaron Burr said to his granddaughter, I made a deal with God. If I would leave God alone, he would leave me alone. And that's been our deal. You see, he was operating on the basis of a behold tomorrow, not a behold today. What you and I have to do then is to manage the opportunities of timing that come our way because... What is being offered to people who ponder the significance of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is a favorable time. And so this morning, if you've come here and you've not yet put your faith and trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, don't mismanage favorable timing. This is a behold moment. This is a now moment. Don't make it a tomorrow moment. Put your faith and trust in Jesus. So now, Hupamane, as we develop endurance for effective ministry, you're noting first of all with me what we'll call the favorable time to be discerned in life. People wear down when they are not able to discern favorable versus unfavorable times. But now here's a second hupomane distinctive. The number two, as we develop endurance for effective ministry, I now want you to notice, second of all with me, 
the intense trials to be experienced in life. You can see what I'm doing with my T's this morning. We're moving from timing to trials. Verses 1 and 2 to 3 through 8. But they have to be understood in relationship to each other. Because when we don't understand the timing of life, we mismanage the trials of life. And the believer's got to understand, very typically, as we've pointed out periodically over the course of years together, those that have been around a little bit, there are basically three approaches to managing trials. Some would use the approach, I will escape trials. And so they turn to drugs or alcohol. A second approach is to endure trials. Stiff upper lip, squinted eyes, full speed ahead, stoic emotionalism without emotion. Third approach, not to escape, not to endure, but to enlist. To ask, how can I take the trials of life and turn it into a ministry through life? So now, what he does at this point is that beginning in verse 3, he says, I'm going to balance a negative and a positive for you to explore in my own relationship with you, Corinthians, because for 18 months I've been there, and you can read about it. We studied it in Acts chapter 18. So negatively, put no obstacle in anyone's way. Check me out in the midst of the trials of life and see the credibility of grace through my life so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, again he's using a phrase from Isaiah 49, it anchored his ministry. We commend ourselves in every way and notice not by minimal endurance, It's by great endurance. The word which was used, for example, by the Apostle Paul as well in Romans chapter 5, where in that powerful chapter, he was able to write in verse 3, not only that we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces hupomane, endurance. And there he linked joy and endurance in the very same way that the writer of Hebrews talked about the joy that was set before Christ endured the cross, hupomane. So now you and I begin to think about what is it that God has placed before me because according to Hebrews chapter 12, when Jesus Christ had to embrace endurance, he did not do so disconnected from this whole idea of joy. But rather, what he did was he pulled together the significance of it all for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. In other words, joy was not necessarily before him in terms of physical eyesight but it was embedded in him with spiritual insight. You've got to be able to see 
what other people might overlook. And when you do that, you've got something to offer people at their point of need. American history shall march along that skyline, announced Gutzon Borglum in 1924, gazing at the Black Hills of South Dakota. 1927, Borglum began sculpting the images of, you know it, George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Thomas Jefferson, Teddy Roosevelt, on the granite face of 6,000-foot Mount Rushmore. Most of the sculpting was done by experienced miners under Borglum's direction. Working with jackhammers, dynamite, they removed some 400,000 tons of outer rock, cutting within three inches of the final surface. When Borglum died in 1941, he was able to say, I looked at that granite and I saw their faces before we even began. His son, Lincoln, finished the work, all told, 14 years after it began. In the midst of the trials of life, sometimes it looks as though all we see is granite. Hardness. But you see, Jesus Christ not, did not merely look at the cross. Jesus Christ looked beyond the cross, the joy set before him. So now you've got to ask yourself, and what is set before me? What am I placing before me while others are operating on eyesight? I've got biblical insight to be able to see ahead while others can only see around. To be able to see what others cannot even envision. That's where hypomane kicks in. And it's kicked in here for the Apostle Paul. And so what captures our attention next? is that he does not become expansive with his words. He's a very complex man, this Paul. But he doesn't talk a lot about himself. Oh, he'll let Luke, the doctor, talk about Paul in the book of Acts. But, well, Paul, he's humble. He keeps it succinct. He doesn't stand before us and say, woe is me, Will you, do you feel bad? And then he gives us three chapters on what his afflictions were about, and three chapters on what the beatings were like. No, he just uses one word, followed by another word, followed by another word. And as he does so, and what comes next here, he initially takes what you and I might call here the physical challenges of life and groups this in a threesome and begins with afflictions, hardships, and calamities. The Greek word here for afflictions, thlipsis, and carries it with it the idea of sheer, intense physical pressure that burdens the heart. Astounding. You've ever been there? The next word, hardships, the inescapable burdens that come with a fallen world. And in military terminology, because the Apostle Paul lived in the Roman Empire and understood the Greek language, calamities, stenchgora, calamities, which means a too narrow place in which 
an army finds itself entrapped. You ever felt that way? I mean, I can see light at the end of this narrow pathway, but man, is this pathway narrow. I feel so incredibly constricted. Ever been there? So he takes now the physical pressures, so the first three, and now adds what I will call the social threats of the next three, beatings, imprisonments, and riots. Beatings, the physical sufferings. Imprisonments, from what we can tell, he was imprisoned seven times, including in Philippi, Jerusalem, Caesarea, in Rome. And you say, I can't relate, but riots. And then we get to the next threesome, labors, sleepless nights, and hunger, labors, toils, to the point of sheer exhaustion, said you. Sleepless nights. View sleepless nights such they're not meant to escape not meant to endure, but to enlist. Ask yourself, okay, what does God want me to do prayer-wise right now for that daughter, that son, uh, that parent, that co-worker, that colleague, that student? Invest it. Don't waste it. Let God put you back to sleep. Hunger. Chance to hear Richard Vembrandt speak. He was been tortured for Christ, the name of a book sitting in a chair as he spoke to a large audience. Communist prison, hero of the faith, on pain of being severely beaten, would share the gospel to prisoners. He said in his book, quote, a number of us decided to pay the price for the privilege of sharing the gospel. So we accepted our captor's terms, a brutal beating for sharing. It was a deal. We'd share, they'd beat. We were happy to share, they were happy to beat. The following scene took place more times than I can remember, he continues. One of my brothers in the faith would be sharing to other prisoners when the guards suddenly burst in, surprising him halfway through a phrase. They hauled him down the corridor to their beating room, and after what seemed an endless beating, they brought him back, threw him bruised and bloody on the prison floor. Slowly he picked his battered body up, painfully straightened his clothing, and said, uh, No, my friends, where did I leave off when I was interrupted? And then he would continue to share the gospel. So your first three deal with what I'll call the physical pressures, afflictions, hardships, calamities. The second three deal with the social threats, the beatings, the imprisonments, the riots. And the third three, labor, sleepless nights, hunger, deal with the personal trials that come our way. So we ask ourselves once again, do I escape this? Do I merely endure this? Or how do I go about finding a way to enlist this? He's not done yet, is he? He's not. Because now he's got you up to verse 6. 
And he's got eight qualities here after you're, we've looked at those, those nine hardships. Purity, knowledge. Knowledge is the ability to understand. Patience, to bear with others when they wrong us. Kindness, standing on a hospital corridor a couple years ago, I remember, I remember this woman looking at this man and then saying to someone else, there's strength in his kindness. Not too many people can be both kind and strong. Stands out. Holy Spirit. Paul walked in the Spirit. Paul was filled with the Spirit. Genuine love. Authentic. Not counterfeit. Agape love. Sacrificial love. Truthful speech. Power of God. What do you do then in the trials of life in terms of looking for a way to communicate the gospel of grace to others who are struggling with life? Ever been to Williamsburg? Blacksmith, about eight years after he had given his heart to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, attending a PCA church, rich in the gospel, growing in his understanding of Scripture. He was approached by a person. Since you became a believer and seemed to love everybody, you've been going through twice as many trials as before. What does that say about your Christianity? The writer describing the blacksmith's response offers us something classic. The thoughtful but glowing face, the blacksmith replied, do you see this piece of iron? It's for the springs of a carriage. I've been tempering it for some time. To do this, I heat it red hot, then plunge it into a tub of ice-cold water. And this I do many times. If I find it taking temper, I beat the hammer unmercifully. I heat the hammer unmercifully. Uh, in getting the right piece of iron, I found several that were too brittle, so I threw them in the scrap pile. Those scraps are worth about a cent a pound, but this carriage spring's very valuable. He paused. His pastor tells us what he said next. God saves us for something more than to have a good time. He wants us for service, just as I want this piece of iron. And he's put the temper of Christ in us by testing us with trial. And ever since this, I've been saying to him, test me in any way you choose, Lord, but make me a carriage spring. Don't throw me in the scrap pile. We get it, don't we? We get it. But Paul, brilliant in his understanding of the culture and of the language and of everything that was happening, now uses a Roman military term because, you see, in Corinth, they had, they had 
tents set up for soldiers, and Paul was a tent maker, and so he'd make tents, obviously, for people such as that. And now what he does at this point, it says, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. So he's once again balanced. But now notice your throughs. They stand out to you at this point. Through honor and dishonor. Those are extremes. Been through the extremes of life? Through slander and praise. We love the praise. We hate the slander. But he's going to remain faithful in both. So you look at that at this point. Now you say to yourself, okay, trials. One option, escape them. Second option, endure them. But the real question is, how can I enlist them And now you're bringing your T's together. Verses 1 and 2, the favorable time. Verses 3 through 8, the intense trials. But we wrap it up now with the second part of verse 8 down through the end of verse 10. That thirdly, as we develop hippomane, endurance for effective ministry, I want you to note thirdly with me this third T, the unfair treatments to be expected in life, and you and I need to expect them. Not every situation we find ourselves in will we be treated fairly. At work, in home, in relationships. What I want you to now do with me is to take the as and the yets and connect them. And notice how he takes the extremes of life and makes something work. As unknown, in verse 9, yet well known. As dying, behold, we live. As punished and yet not killed. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, yet possessing everything. He takes the extremes of life and then finds a way to make something whereby which he can enlist this in a way that brings glory to God's name. Why? Because just as in the case of Jesus Christ, he connects joy to hupomane and is able to endure because he can see what's before him, which is what keeps people keeping on when they love Jesus as Lord and Savior. Florence Chadwick, the first woman to swim the English Channel in both directions. That's astounding. Fourth of July, 1951, tried to swim from Catalina Island to the California coast. Sports writer tells us the challenge was not so much the distance, but the bone-chilling waters of the Pacific. To complicate matters, a dense fog lay over the entire area, making it impossible for her to see land. And about 15 hours in the water... Get this, within a half mile of her goal, she gave up. Gave up. In an interview later, she told a reporter, look, I'm not excusing myself. And then I mocked this from a sports magazine I was reading. But if I could have seen land, I might have made it.
When we lack physical eyesight, we need spiritual foresight and insight to see what others can't see. And so Jesus, while others around him saw the cross, Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. And that's how we utilize hupomane, you see. She tried it again. And once more, a misty veil obscured the coastline. She couldn't see the shore. But this time, she made it because she kept reminding herself there was land there. There was land there. And no matter what you're going through in life, the tease, the timing, the trials, the treatments, what others can't see, what a believer through insight and foresight can see, You've got to remind yourself that Jesus Christ, for the joy that was set before him, Hupomane, endured the cross. And that's why a Wesley could write to a Wilberforce. Unless the divine power has raised you up, I see not how you can go through your enterprise in opposing that abominable practice of slavery, which is the scandal of England and human nature, Unless God has raised you up for this thing, you're going to be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. But if God be for you, who can be against you? Are all of them together stronger than God? Endure, Wilberforce. Endure. Go on in the name of God and in the power of his might. Hupamane, people. Let's stand together. We love the words of the scripture. Every word counts. We connect the behold nows. We connect the as yets. We connect the Older Testament and the Newer Testament. And we connect truth to our lives. If there's anyone that has not yet put faith and trust in Jesus, this is not a behold yesterday and this is not a behold tomorrow. They've got a favorable time on their hands. Speak to that heart. Show them the need that we are saved exclusively by Jesus Christ's finished work And may they trust him as Savior and Lord and begin to live for him and to work out what you have worked in. For those that are experiencing trials of life and for those when it comes to the treatments of life, feel as though this is more than I can handle. Put the joy before them and give them that sense of strength that is found in Christ and Christ alone. And for this, we'll give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.